Today is Sunday, March 13th, and this is episode 264 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? Doing great. Have a good view? Yeah, you're at, you're, at the, uh, you're at the Southern Command today. That's right. DefSec in, Southern Command. In, in sunny Florida. We won't go further than that for security purposes. I can see water. I'll, I'll just say that. Mm, that does narrow it down. To like 2,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it looks like a lovely place to be. And uh, I'll, I'll be there in four hours. Good deal. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little warmer than where you're at, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. True. But you have, you know. Lovely view, as you said. I do, and I have my cat and my dog and my kids. And most of those are good things to have. That's right. That's right. Uh, just a quick reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. And um, I, I guess, you know, since we've been off for the past two weeks, you know, the, obviously the world has kind of gone to hell in a handbasket. And I, th- I think most of the known world has been trying to figure out how to um, how to limit the risk of uh, Russia, Bel- uh, Belarus, and Ukraine. So I I don't intend to spend much time here talking about that. I think I think everybody's uh, probably sick of it. I, the only thing I will say is I think everybody wisely and correctly predicted a large amount of cyber attack activity in conjunction with the kinetic war, uh, but it hasn't seemingly materialized. And that I think is interesting. We, I think we all in our line of work expected a lot more fireworks and that we haven't seen. And I don't know, it's weird. Uh, you know, I think I'm not, I, I don't think the predictions were unwise. They just so far appear to have been incorrect. Yeah, so far. I mean, I, I it it is um, it is still somewhat early days in the conflict, and you know, we when, when we look back at what happened uh, previously with NotPetya, you know, this is that's I think kind of the worst case scenario that everybody's thinking about again. You know, how, how, if we allow endpoints from uh, you know from from unwashed or unmanaged third parties into our environment, that 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 can be a, a you know a gateway into uh, our networks for for something, you know, I, again that new like um, like not Petya was. So I, again, I we haven't we haven't seen it on a, on the scale of not Petya. I would say that if you talk to you know a lot of the security companies, there's certainly a lot of activity happening in the Ukraine, but it's not, you know, it's not kind of spreading far and wide. Yeah. And who knows what we don't know, right? There's probably a lot of stuff that we are, don't understand or aren't hearing. Sure. The people who know aren't necessarily talking. 
There, in theory, I'm told, was a whole lot of prep work that Western nations did in Ukraine leading up to this for a, a cyber defense standpoint. I don't know. I, I feel like what we all thought was going to happen hasn't happened, so now I feel like I'm on thin ice trying to prognosticate around the future of that conflict. But Yeah, the situation in Russia, though, is quite interesting. The, uh, the segmentation of the Internet... Not not necessarily from a, a political standpoint. That that's not my my area. But just watching, you know, watching what's happening with the internet has uh, been fascinating. With Russia standing up its own TLS uh, certificate authority and mm-hmm. forcing all um, you know, forcing all .ru domains onto a a government. I guess it's a government administered. Um, uh, a name server set of name servers, and then uh, you know lots lots of the uh, the, the main the major internet properties are either being kicked out or pulling out. Uh, at what we saw, a backbone provider cogent um, you know, back out, and then interestingly, uh, um, Akamai and Cloudflare have both recently so far said that they're not going to to back outs of, of Russia. So. Interesting stuff. And by the way, there's a there's a fascinating article. I don't have it linked for the, for this show, but there's a fascinating story about um, what Cloudflare is doing to minimize their risk. About uh, they're they're not storing customer encryption keys. They're actually they've they've created this concept of session keys that are stored ephemerally huh. on systems in the region, and they've actually got them set up so that if Anything happens, they lose internet connectivity or they lose their power. When they come back up, they're bricked. Interesting. So, interest. You know, the, so, some creative stuff going on in in the world right now. Hmm. Well, you know, we don't get into politics here, and we're certainly not going to do it now. But it will be. I think a lot of interesting lessons will be learned long term from this sort of situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we do have a couple of stories. The first one comes from Bleeping Computer, and this one is uh, it's a small, small one, but it's a it's indicative of a trend I'm seeing, and I wanted to call it out. It comes again. It comes from Bleeping Computer. Title is Adafruit discloses data leak from ex employees GitHub repo. And what happened here is a former Adafruit employee had been maintaining a, uh, a, a get their own GitHub report, uh, repository, not as part of Adafruit's um, like corporate repo, but in the public GitHub space. And, you know, conveniently for the developer, I suppose, they had been using uh, actual data, actual customer data. And some some amount of that customer data actually wound up in this uh, this ex-developer's a GitHub repository just freely available to download, uh, and you know this again. This is a trend I'm seeing, not necessarily in this specific set of facts. I've I've not seen too many cases of actual like personally identifiable identifiable information being stored in GitHub repos. But we are starting to see things like you know access tokens and passwords and and whatnot with you know more and more frequency where in in particular uh, a lot of companies have this concept of an internal 
GitHub repo, which is access controlled, only available to, you know, customer, uh, I shouldn't say customer, but company employees and, and whatnot. Um, but they're also f- kind of fostering this um, uh, you know, participation in open source and whatnot. And so I my perception is that we're going to see a lot more of this because, uh, you know, people right or wrong, I think sometimes have uh, struggle with the idea of um, of separating between, you know, company, especially if, if they're both GitHub, right? Between company and, and personal or public. That, by the way, completely ignores the fact that developers shouldn't have access to production data, which is, I think, uh, you know, something that fell apart in this particular case. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the circumstances of how the data was disclosed or stored is different, but this is an age-old problem of devs needing or wanting examples of production data for their projects and companies struggling to build a representative data set out of fake data that serves the needs of the developers. It's a very common problem. Uh, seen it throughout my entire career. This is different in that now it's pushed out to GitHub. And this is an interesting information disclosure sort of problem because you're right about GitHub having this weird potential blurry line between what is the enterprise repo, what's a personal repo, you know, are they coming in with it with their personal account and attaching to the enterprise repo? You know, there's, there's a whole bunch of nuance there. Uh, and does a corporation have the right or the need to see what's in their employees' personal repos to try to limit information disclosure or, you know, this sort of problem. It's, it's, a, it's a tough challenge, but you're right. We're seeing more and more uh, leaking of information via, via repos. And I think that in part is because that's how modern development is done, but it also seems like we're, we're not being as careful with secrets and API keys and that sort of stuff that we probably should be in the way that the developers are using it because of convenience and fast dev time, turnaround times and, you know, just the way modern development cycles work for a lot of companies. Yeah, de- definitely. The other the other big issue, uh, I, I think, where Adafruit fell down, other than making sure that developers don't have access to uh, you know, production data, or live data, and then also not posting it publicly, is that after after they um, made an announcement that this had happened, they publicly stated that they weren't going to be, you know, based on a threat analysis, they weren't going to be notifying the people who were impacted, so whose whose personal information were posted in the uh, in in the public repository. And they took a lot of hell for that, which is surprising because Adafruit is. You know, generally a pretty otherwise progressive uh, company. So I was I was pretty surprised to see that. Surprised that they took hell, or that they chose not to email folks. That they chose not to e people, email people. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean they they came out with a bit of an explanation. They they heard the feedback from the community and like, oh, I, I, we screwed that one up. Okay, we're going to do that. And you know they kind of had this explanation. We did what we thought. Our was best right so maybe they just listened to some bad advice i don't know 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, they, they did obviously quickly course correct, and they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't pick a bad hill to die on. So right. give, them, give them credit <laughs> for that. Uh, but you know, it's look. This is um, this is why we all have jobs, right? Yeah. So security is security is hard, and uh, you know, this is an opportunity for us to learn from. You know, I think, I think that you know, unfortunately if I kind of decompose what happened, a lot of this I think does come down to behavior, right? Especially when you're thinking about public GitHub versus internal GitHub, that is a bit of a behavior thing. It's, it's going to be difficult to implement technical controls there. Um, on the other hand though, it is, you know, it, it is a, a pretty cut and dry access control philosophy that would restrict, developer access to data. Now, having said that, if, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Adafruit in their organization, right? If they have, you know, 10 developers and that's their IT their IT team, you're probably not going to implement that kind of hard and fast segregation. But otherwise, you know, that that's, I think that's the, uh, the next layer of defense. Yep. Right, so moving on to our next story, which also comes from Bleeping Computer. The title here is Malware Now Using NVIDIA Stolen Code Signing Certificates. So not too long ago, NVIDIA was the victim of a, uh, of a ransomware attack, the, this type of which involves stealing data. And apparently they had about one terabyte of data stolen which included some expired, two expired code signing certificates. And uh, one, one of those certificates expired, I think it was eight years ago, the other expired four years ago. Now, but the interesting thing is that though they're expired, Windows still honors code that's signed with expired certificates. And the reason is that it, let's say you, um, as a consumer, go buy or, or pull out of your junk bin, you know, a five-year, six- or seven- or eight-year-old video card, and you slap it into your computer, and you need to install some drivers. If that, that you know, the drivers for that video card haven't been updated in five, six, seven years, the code signing certificate for that driver is almost certainly uh, expired. And likewise, if the manufacturer of that card goes out of business, well, there's certainly not going to be any more, any more, um, you know, currently signed drivers. So it's by design windows. And I think some other operating systems too, do accept codes, code signed with, uh, with expired certificates, which is problematic here because now we have a situation where, certificates uh, are in the hands of adversaries who are actively signing malicious code, which has the implication of once, if, if the adversary is able to get that code onto a, a computer, they're able, you know, it can be installed without, without a lot of uh, hoopla. Yeah. It's almost like we need a third option for code signing verification, which is not good, bad, but you know, known to be maliciously used right used caution right like a reputation yeah a cert certificate reputation that's a, that's not a bad idea um so it's not just a binary a binary thing in the in the article they actually give some guidance uh released by microsoft 
on how to uh, how to block these specific code signing certificates, but it is not easy, and I think it's um, it's I would say nigh impossible for uh, like more of a consumer type person. Yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, but it might help corporations or enterprises or yeah. I, I don't know. I mean. The whole point of being able to revoke a certificate is something like this. And if we're not going to revoke a certificate when it's being used maliciously because we're now worried about bricking other things, what's the point? Like when when are you willing – is there a period of time that you'll add it to your revoke list? Uh, I don't know. I'm a little frustrated with, with the, the box they've gotten themselves into with this situation. Yeah, there's uh... – not a lot of good options here, uh, other than to follow the guidance, the guidelines that were provided by Microsoft. It sounds like at some point in the future, Microsoft may revisit their decision to uh, to blacklist this these two certificates. So, um, moving on to our last story for today, the title here is one from ZDNet. Title is an NSA report. This is how you should be securing your network. So, the NSA, if for those of you, of you who aren't familiar the nsa and cisa have been if you're not familiar i'm sure they're familiar with you yeah they i'm I'm sure they're quite familiar with you absolutely uh (laughs) they've been releasing some uh i i I assume they're trying to keep up with the joneses in uh the gchq in the uk and in the asd down in australia you know who have been like super thought leaders in security, the NSA actually is now releasing quite a lot of guidance at a, at a bit of a fever pitch recently. This, um, this new document is, I'll, I'll say it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I think you characterize it as, is, um, you know, a bit of new and a bit of old when you, when you first sent it to me. Um, and, I, after having read it, a couple of observations. Number one is it's highly cent- uh, Cisco-centric. Yeah, it almost feels like, hey, for this particular network design, with this particular gear, on these particular versions, what should we configure? It's, it's, a, it's very, very highly Cisco-centric. And it is, um, it, it's, it's fairly basic, too. Um, I it occurred to me that most of the stuff here you would learn you know through some basic cisco security education um but you know having said that it comes from a reputable source it's kind of like hiring a consultant right somebody somebody more important and authoritative is saying is telling you how you should be doing things there are i, I would say the one um the one surprising thing in here there's not a lot of surprising things in here. The one surprising thing for me in here was the um, the the high amount of specificity they gave to VPN configuration. And yeah, it, it, it again, it felt like somebody said, "Here's a very specific network environment." Right. What are the best practices for this particular situation? Which is fine, but it's not very generically useful information for anybody else. Yeah, it it goes from um, it goes from some very fluffy statements like I've complained about in the past, uh, you know, where where 
it, at the very start of the document, it talks about how you, you really should only allow network traffic that is specifically required to accomplish the mission of the network, I think is, is what they said. But, you know, one of the challenges, like I've been doing IT stuff for damn near 30 years now, maybe longer. And one of the, one of the challenges you often run into is, well, you know, my application requires all the high ports. Right. <laughs> right. Bi-directional. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's a requirement. <laughs> what can we do? Right. <laughs> so some other protocol you've never heard of, just everything, just turn it all on. What can we do? Right. I mean, it's, it's required. I was told it's required. What can we do? I, I, that, that is, I think part of the, part of the challenge that gets us into trouble is we make trade-offs a lot of times without even understanding that we're making trade-offs because, you know, we don't, we don't deeply understand um, you know, some, what those trade-offs are. Right. Whereas we, you know, we should be thinking about how to, you know, how to, to, to minimize the threat space down to you know, next to nothing and then figure out how to make our applications work with that rather than the other way around, right? We, we, we start with, you know, the, the list of required ports and protocols and, and whatnot and, and from, for any given application. And, uh, and I think that gets us into some trouble. I mean, we've, I've talked about it in the past about how it's enabled tunneling, you know, kind of free and easy tunneling between otherwise restricted network between domain controllers. So but on. the rea- I mean the the sad reality is when you go to an application owner or whomever's making a request for whatever network configuration they want and you ask them what exact ports and protocols do you need they can't answer that question 9 times out of 10. Well if they, and if they can it's out of the manual of the or or off the FAQ page of the right. software provider. I mean you and I ran a network together a long time ago that we were very particular about the, the firewall rules and we forced that kind of, you have to tell us exactly what it is and we tightened it down as hard as we could. The problem with that is it slowed everything down, took a lot of effort, a lot of smart people's time, is very secure, but it probably is way too slow for the average business and it just isn't viable for most organizations, at least currently today, there's not this push to say, give me very detailed information of exactly what you talk on. And and when I say talk on, I mean ports, protocols, you know, that kind of thing. They, I, I think so many network folks or security folks have just gotten away from that question. Even the vendors don't tell you or they don't know. So I don't know. I feel like we've lost that battle. I guess is where I'm going with this. Yeah, but that's that's the trade-off, though, right? I mean, you know, it's it it it's just another example of of the trade-off between speed and security, or or labor, yeah, you know, labor and uh, and security. And you know, I, ideally, we would find a better way, uh, but I, I think given the constraints of of how IP works and how applications work and how firewalls work and whatnot. You know, I, I think we're we're in a bit of a tight spot, and either either we end up on you know the the really hyper restrictive going to be slow side, or or we're too permissive. And that is, uh, so so anyway, it it was interesting to 
contrast that fuzzy abstract guidance with in the VPN section only use UDP ESP um, you know, <laughs> based uh, VPN protocols like only use UDP 4500 and use these very specific algorithms and and it was it was just a, it was a um, kind of a, an interesting dichotomy between the two bits of guidance it probably relates to um, maybe their their level of of expertise right they're um, they're maybe not so expert in in kind of the the consultative aspect of network design, but more in the like system configuration. Yeah. It felt like somebody just copy pasted an SOP of how they set things up. Yes. Yes. They like, they have a set of, of standard configuration standards and they did some copy paste, like you said. Yet let's not even think about, you know, the vast majority of companies are now doing something in the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was just it was just a really weird. I expected it to be a lot more useful to a lot more companies than this was. So I don't know. It it, it seemed it seemed very useful. And, oh, and the, one one other um, one other interesting thought they had, which I thought was actually a, a good idea, and that was it, putting if if you're not able to do, um, if you're not able to restrict the the other end VPN endpoints, so where the VPN connections are coming in from, if you're not able to to restrict that to a set of known IP addresses, they recommend putting I, um, IPS devices in front of your, your VPN endpoint, which is not a bad idea. And the intention was to look for attacks against the um, you know, protocol attacks against the VPN, which I guess makes, makes some good sense. Although, again, I've done done this kind of thing for a long, long time, and unless VPN tech, or sorry, IPS technology has come a long way, I've never actually seen an IPS you know, be able to 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 provide deep insight into attacks on VPN endpoints like that. Yeah, upper, yeah, that would... upper layer VPN yeah. attacks. Uh, or so, unless you have a really weak VPN. Well, yeah, I suppose. Well, so it, it's really their recommendation is is looking at um, protocol negotiation attacks, yeah. Which you, you know, conceivably you would be able to see outside of a outside of an encryption stack. But um, I, I think that I think that the problem is that's fairly nuanced. Like you, you would have to have an IPS that's has that capability. I, I I don't think you're going to be able to slap any just any IPS in there. And get that done. Um, now, the one thing that they didn't have, which I thought that they should have had, is uh, port isolation. Because they do talk, uh, they have a whole section on configuring uh, ports, and it talks about disabling dynamic trunking and uh, port security and VLANs and and um, um, network access control and turning off unused ports and disabling proxy ARP and, and whatnot. But they don't talk about port isolation. Which I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, I also thought it was interesting that they suggested a password of NSA backdoor to all of your stuff. <laughs> I was, you know, that I was, I was half, 
thinking that, you know, that, uh, to say there's, there's two versions of this document. There's one for, for U.S. companies and one for non-U.S. Uh, anyway, it's it's a it's a interesting document, and I I would say it's just one of a of a a library of documents that the that the NSA is starting to put out, and and so you know, may, maybe in the future there'll be another version for Palo or you know whatever, but uh, but this is it it is interesting because it's a very um, very old school IT centric. I guess it, I think that's what I've been trying to have. A hard, I've been having a hard time like, yeah. putting my finger on what is the consternation I have with it. And I think it's it's just that it's old school IT. Two thousand three called. They want their advice back. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Anyway, uh, I, I look. I I um I don't want to discourage agencies like the NSA from from trying to help companies and organizations be more secure. I think this is is good stuff. It would be super helpful to see some things like this for modern IT. I guess is the best way I can say. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, you know, the um the beach is is calling, so I I think I'm going to Jerry, are you hearing voices again? Well, yeah. Hmm. That's all right. We'll I, get you. We'll I, get well, you I, I wouldn't say. I don't know that it's again. Maybe yeah. still. That's fair. <laughs> you know, if you don't argue with the voices, it's much easier. That's true. That's true. But then you know, then you're just ignoring them, and and they don't like that. Hmm. They really don't. And on that awkward note, <laughs> thank you everyone for uh, for listening. You can follow uh, the show on on uh, online at defensivesecurity.org. You can find all of our back episodes. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Larg. You can follow me on Twitter at maliciouslink. And with that, we will talk again soon. Thanks everybody. Have a great week. Bye bye. Take care.